Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. so happy to be here today and the story i have to for you is pretty dark oh i'm loving it already so warning for all those that don't like dark things you should stop listening now because this one's dark i can't wait okay good carol i think this is a good time for us to talk about mental health oh gosh (laughs) what have i done Uh, oh you know what you did (laughs) as you and i both know mental health is becoming an increasing problem in the united states especially as it sits unaddressed largely by our society and though it seems like this problem has grown more and more it may just be that we are seeing it more and more in the news and in social media and on our streets One reason for the public awareness increase may be due to the fact that many mental institutions were shut down, destroyed, and abandoned over the last 100 years, and all of the people that depended on them for help were turned back out onto the streets or dumped into prisons. Yeah. So why were these institutions abandoned, and what can the eerie, stenciled memories of these places tell us about their past and the paranormal footprints they have left behind? I'll tell you what they told us. I Mm. watched American Horror Story. (laughs) Yeah, the the asylum one. Yeah, there is some very scary stuff going in those asylums. There are. Yeah, it's pretty dark. So the history of the mental health asylums in the United States goes back to about the mid-1800s when advocacy for the mentally ill started making its way through the U.S. government. A woman named Dorothea Dix led the charge for improving the ways in which the mentally ill were dealt with in the United States during that time. Many of the mentally ill were jailed or held in basements in those days. So she proposed that the U.S. government start investing in large hospitals that could house people with mental illness. As Dorothea was pushing her legislation through Congress, a psychiatrist named Thomas Story Kirkbride was developing his plans for a mental asylum that would help treat and cure the mentally ill. It was known as the Kirkbride Plan. Kirkbride believed the best way to treat people with a mental illness would be to house them in quiet, solitary rooms in buildings that were designed to allow as much sunlight and air circulation into the building as possible. That sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds lovely. But it sounds good for anybody with even sanity would Mm -hmm. enjoy that. Um, In order to allow for the sunlight and the air to circulate, the most common type of, quote, Kirkbride design included several staggered wings extending from a core building somewhat resembling the wings of a bat. Therefore, it was called the bat wing style floor plan with around eight bat wings extending from the core building. And did it have a bat cave? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Kirkbride's design also allowed for tall ceilings, about 12 feet high, and small private rooms for single patients. Typically, his hospitals would house about 250 people. And and then by people, I mean patients. Mm -hmm. He also wanted each wing to have a dumbwaiter to move items between various floors and a speaking tube to ease communication between the floors as well. The most dangerous patients were located the furthest from the center of the building with the center of the building used for staff housing, kitchens, and public reception. 
Kirkbride also wanted his hospitals to sit on at least 100 acres of land in order to have farmlands and places for the patients to exercise and help grow food, which would be part of their therapy. Kirkbride also suggested that these hospitals be staffed with at least 71 employees split evenly by sex that would be living in the hospital or very near the hospital grounds. The top physician would be required to live at the hospital, with his family given the option to live there with him or her or in a residence nearby. The supervising physician would get paid $1,500 or $45,000 annually by today's oh. standards, or if his family lived off the hospital grounds, then they would be paid $2,500 or $75,000 annually by today's income, which is really not a tremendous amount if you think about it. Mm-mm. As the United States government agreed to start building the hospitals to help care for the mentally ill, Kirkbride's design started to take root, and the first Kirkbride Hospital was built in New Jersey in 1848. Eventually, 73 of these hospitals were constructed throughout the United States, many of them taking on that gothic, batwing-style look as mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. As of today, 33 of them still stand. Some examples of the Kirkbride hospitals include the Danvers State Hospital in Massachusetts. Yay, we talked about that one. Yep, and the Oregon State Hospital, both of which we've covered on this mm-hmm. podcast. Though the Kirkbride hospitals were very popular during their time, over the years, the hospitals were hit hard by budget cuts and the lack of affordability to maintain the large buildings and staff. Also, the idea that fresh air and sunlight could help cure the mentally ill started to come under major scrutiny in the medical community. Hmm. Why? Because the sunburns? No, I think they getting. just thought it doesn't really cure anything. Oh, okay. That's my guess, yeah. yeah. So eventually, many of the Kirkbride hospitals were torn down. In fact, the only two surviving Kirkbride hospitals on the West Coast are the Oregon State Hospital and the Eastern Oregon State Hospital, though now it functions as the Eastern Oregon State Correctional Institute in Pendleton. <laughs> Even though parts of the Oregon State Hospital in Salem were demolished, its core Kirkbride structure is still in place. Many of the Kirkbride hospitals that still stand have been partly demolished and transformed into new buildings with a new purpose, with the exception of one. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum still stands in its entirety with all of its stories intact and chocked full of stories to tell. And boy, does it have stories to tell. Please do tell, Holly. (laughs) Do tell. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum opened in October of 1864 and operated all the way up until 1994. It was also known as the Weston State Hospital as it was in the town of Weston, West Virginia. During its construction... Irish and German stonemasons were brought over to add hand-cut sandstone to the building. This would make the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum the second-largest hand-cut sandstone building in the world, second only to the Kremlin in Moscow. During the Civil War, the hospital's construction was halted, and the hospital was used by the Union armies to house soldiers in the parts of the hospital that had already been constructed. Eventually, the funds for the hospital were reinstated, and construction continued. The asylum was built to house 250 patients per the Kirkbride model. They also had a vegetable garden on the grounds, dairy cows, and a well, so that the hospital could be self-sustaining. The patients were encouraged to learn farming jobs around the hospital as part of their therapy. However, as news of the hospital's opening spread, many people started showing up to drop off the, quote, mentally ill at the hospital doors. Some of the reasons given for patients' admittance were asthma, greediness, 
being superstitious <laughs> or being overly religious, masturbation, tuberculosis, heartbreak, alcoholism, drug use, egoism, bad whiskey, or desertion by husband, etc. Some men would turn in their wives for, quote, menstrual derangement. <laughs> menstrual derangement. <laughs> or domestic trouble. And some people were turning just for being lazy. I, lo I love that. In one of the documentaries I watched, they even implied that the families were paid for the people that they dropped off at this asylum, though I didn't find that mentioned anywhere else. So I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is. But if you think about it, Carol, think about this. I am thinking. If I'm you, really thinking. If you have a super annoying person in your life, uh -huh. you just drop them off at the asylum and collect your money. Oh, yeah. Problem uh solved. I just find you annoying, so I'm going to take you over to the hospital so they can figure out what's wrong with you. <laughs> what a horrible... You menstrual deranged person. What a horrible system. I, I mean, know. so many innocent people were rounded oh, up. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's awful. Just because they were an inconvenience, they weren't well liked, um, they you know, were egotistical, superstitious. Just an oddball, oddball. Had tuberculosis, like whatever it was. Just go away to the hospital. I don't want to put up with this shit. It's kind of funny. They believed in ghosts. Oh, oh, I know. So as you can imagine, the low barrier to entry meant the hospital filled up quite fast, as mm -hmm. pretty much any reason would get you admitted. Many of the patients admitted to the hospital did not have a mental illness, but while they stayed at the asylum, mental illnesses would soon start to develop. <laughs> Very soon, the hospital was well over capacity and housed up to 750 patients in a hospital built for 250. The employees could not keep up. They had four to five patients to a room, sharing a bed and sleeping on the floor. Eventually, the staff could not focus on treatment of the patients, but just tried their best to keep them contained to their rooms. Some of the patients rebelled by setting fire to their rooms. Oh, my gosh. At its population height, the asylum had over 2,600 patients, which is 10 times over capacity for what it was constructed for. Hopefully they weren't blocking fire exits. Oh, my God. As the hospital population grew, because they literally turned away no one, many of the residents were suffering from the lack of resources. There was not enough beds, clean clothes, general care, food, heat, etc., the staff was so overwhelmed that there was no care given to clean the building itself, and eventually it became so grimy that the sunlight streaming through the windows was blocked out by the dirt. Everything was covered in filth. The wallpaper started to peel, and the building became disheveled. The government would respond by building more buildings and taking in even more people. Because that's the answer, apparently. Yeah. When the hospital's construction was finally completed, the hospital grounds covered exactly... 666 acres with 13 buildings covering the land. Wait, did you say 666 acres? Yes, only? with yes, with 13 buildings covering the land. Is this a bad omen? You yes, betcha. it is. <laughs> and I'm not superstitious. No, but that's not, not good at news. all. That is not good news. Adorning the building were small gargoyle-like faces put there by the Irish immigrants that were brought over to help in construction. It is believed that the faces are those of lunatics put on the building to ward off evil spirits. But apparently that did not work because what happened inside the walls of the asylum was definitely evil. Complaining patients would be met with solitary confinement, chained to walls, or put into something called a confinement crib. 
Confinement cribs were essentially flat boxes with short legs like a coffee table that were covered with slats on the sides. Mm -hmm. The patients would be put inside the crib and either a solid top or a slatted top would be placed on top of them. So there were no tours of check out my crib. And no, it wasn't that type of crib. The thinning was so narrow that the patient could not even sit up even a little bit. They just laid locked inside the crib, sometimes for days. Once released, some of these patients couldn't even walk for being incapacitated for so long. That's horrible. Some stopped talking altogether. The staff loved the confinement cribs because <sighs> it got their complaining patients to stop talking. What better way to shut up a complaining patient? For their more violent patients, they placed them in a restraint chair in which their ankles, waist, wrists, and shoulders, and necks were tied down in such a way that their bodies sat straight up in the chair. Then they were wheeled into a corner to think about what they had done. Many times they were also forgotten about by the staff and would sit in the posture for hours, if not days. This really reminds me of my second grade experience. <laughs> Many times the patients would get blood clots in their legs and die in these chairs. Is that what happened to you in the second grade? I didn't die. No, but I was put you didn't. in the corner a lot. Unless this whole time you've been a ghost. With duct tape. And I have clairvoyance. For sure. You had duct tape? put on your mouth i had a couple teachers put the duct tape on me <laughs> or masking tape so one thing that really worked out for the staff was the fact that the patients had no rights therefore they didn't have to ask for permission to perform their experimental treatments on them the doctors tried all sorts of sick things on these people to see what would be effective in curing their ailments Hydrotherapy was administered, which included submerging patients up to their necks in either ice-cold water or super-hot water. Sometimes they would be in these baths for days to see if the effects would help them to heal with, from their original issues. This would result in the patient's skin breaking down and open sores developing. Bloodletting was also practiced, Carol. The idea behind it was that whatever was ailing the mentally ill was contained in the blood. And mm, by draining all the, true. Yeah. And by draining the blood, they could drain out the disease. They used a device called a scarificator, which the doctors placed upon the skin of the patient. The doctor would then hit a spring coil button on the scarificator that quickly and forcefully released several razor sharp blades in the skin creating deep cuts and allowing blood to start spurting out of the body immediately. All right. That sounds like a really aggressive <clears throat> form of acupuncture. <laughs> I mean, they clearly did mm. not have the correct training. And it's interesting, too, nowadays that cutting isn't looked upon as nicely as it was back in those days. I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah, cutting is self-harm self in most cases. That's right? right. That's right. But then there's those things that they do called cupping, which draws the bad that's blood a little to the less, surface. That's a little less, um, I mean, that can be intense. I wonder if in the future they're going to they're gonna look back and be like, do you remember that when society did that to people? Yeah. And people were walking around with bruises all over their back from cupping. That's right. I remember yeah. the first time I did it. What happened? I didn't bruise enough. I was a little disappointed. I'm oh. like, does, what does that mean? And the person was like, well, you don't have as much toxicity as well, that's a good. lot of people. That's so, good. Yeah. I've had cupping done a few times and I've had plenty of my clients that have had cupping. And um, yeah, everyone kind of has Bruises a different reaction to it. Yeah, for sure. It's supposed to suck up all that blood mm -hmm. into the um, skin to drain out, I think, the impurities or I don't know exactly. It's, it causes more circulation yeah. within the blood to yeah. help you know yeah get rid of all that eventually right, right. yep um another thing that doctors like to administer were seizures thinking that inducing seizures would help the patients somehow reset their brains and get better the doctors would deplete the patient's bodies of sugar until a seizure was induced 
or they would give them drugs to induce a seizure. The drugs cause the patients to have a horrific reaction and panic attacks and then go into full convulsions. These drugs were so feared by the patients that they would start screaming and clawing to get away when the doctors would come for them to administer the medications. I wonder what medication it was. I wrote down in my notes, Matrazel, M-A-T-R-O-Z-E-L, Matrazel, something hmm. like that. I could have that wrong. And of course, this wouldn't be a creepy old school lunatic asylum without everyone's favorite torture devices. Spiders. <laughs> electroshock therapy oh, and electric. ice pick lobotomies. Yes. Electroshock therapy was where the doctors would hook the patients up to electrodes that would send waves of high voltage electricity through the patient's bodies, withering them in an involuntary movement and ushering intense and horrific pain throughout their torso and limbs. Electroshock therapy was used to treat ailments like depression, schizophrenia, and of course, homosexuality. Lobotomies were practiced using an ice pick that was inserted into the eye socket of the patient and then either using a hammer or the palm of the doctor's hand, the doctor would pound the pick into the eye of the patient until it entered into the frontal lobe of the brain. Once inside the brain, the doctors would swish it around a little bit, essentially scrambling the frontal lobe. When lobotomies were first introduced, they were hailed as a cure for mental illness. And in fact, the Portuguese doctor who came up with the practice, Dr. Antonio Igas Moniz, won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1949 for inventing it. But all lobotomies really did was render their patients incoherent and put them in a vegetable-like state. I wonder if it caused them to go blind, too. I think it did all sorts of shit. I really do. One of the pioneers in the practice was Dr. Walter Freeman, who did at least 100 to as many as 440 lobotomies at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Many people died as a result of the lobotomies, and many others just turned into mindless zombies. However, the practice was deemed a great success by the medical community. Oh, the patient stopped talking? Success. <laughs> oh, gosh. Dr. Freeman. Anything that makes their lives easier right? is a success. That's in what was their deemed book. successful. Mm -hmm. Dr. Freeman was a somewhat famous lobotomist as he did perform the lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's sister. In reality, Rosemary Kennedy was slow and rebellious, not really somebody who needed a lobotomy. But after the procedure, Rosemary was institutionalized for the rest of her life as the lobotomy rendered her mentally and physically disabled. That is a sad story. It's very sad. Mm -hmm. I think I read that the reason that um, JFK's father had it done was because they were concerned that she wasn't going to be able to keep up with the rest of the family and discussing politics and oh. trying to, you know, stay on the same level as everybody. So they it's thought horrible. that this would somehow fix that. I don't really know. And maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just bullshit, but whatever. Um, this did not stop, this this bad lobotomy did not stop Dr. Freeman from traveling all around the country, performing his procedures on mental patients anywhere he could, and teaching other doctors how to do the same. Of the patients that survived, many had to relearn how to go to the bathroom and how to eat for themselves. It is estimated that 15% of the patients died from his work. The lobotomies would cause the patient's eyes to swell up and blood would drip down their faces. They would experience epilepsy, brain abscesses, and dementia. Dr. Freeman even once killed a patient accidentally when he stopped to take a photo during the procedure and the brain scambling instrument he was using went a little too deeply into the person's brain. Oh, wow. He even did his work on children, including 19 minors. 
He finally had to hang up his ice pick when in 1967, he killed yet another patient and the medical community banned him from doing any more lobotomies. Yeah, he's like Dr. Death. He he really is. Meanwhile, the conditions at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum were barbaric. Overcrowding continued to get worse. Torture continued with the confinement cribs, the restraint chairs, the hydrotherapy sessions, bloodletting, seizure induction, electroshock treatment, and lobotomies, and the lack of basic resources like cleanliness, food, heat, and beds, and being surrounded by the genuinely mad started to drive the population at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, well, into lunatics. They started to attack the doctors, the nurses, and other staff, as well as other patients. Murder and rape started to become a commonplace in the hospital. Many female staff were attacked and raped by male patients. In 1987, a mentally disabled man named Dean Metheny, who was a staff favorite for his sweet nature, had a rare outburst and was sent to another room to cool off. Unfortunately, he was sent to a room with two men, James Woods and David Mason. Woods and Mason were both criminally insane. In fact, it was rumored that Woods was a serial killer. When Dean was housed with them, the two men devised a plan. They roped a bed sheet around Dean's throat and then threw the sheet up over a ceiling pipe running across the span of the room. They then slowly raised him up and held him there until he passed out from lack of oxygen. Then they lowered him back down, woke him up, and raised him back up again. They did this over and over again. Dean was a mute, so he could not call out for help. Finally, after the two grew bored of this activity, they placed Dean on his stomach, turned his head to one side, and placed the foot of the metal bed frame on top of it. Then one of them held him down while the other jumped up and down on the bed. The foot of the bed frame crushed his skull and pierced his brain, killing him instantly. The two men were charged with Dean's murder, but were deemed unfit to stand trial due to their mental deficiencies. However, a few years later, in 1992, a 46-year-old man named George Edward Bodie died after he was beaten to death by David Mason, one of Dean's killers. It is believed that both David Mason and James Woods stayed at the asylum until it closed in 1994. I have no idea what happened to them after that. Yeah, I can't believe all this was going on that recent. I mean, just in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. In another incident, one of the female nurses disappeared from the hospital. Everyone assumed that she had become fed up and walked out. No one thought to go looking for her. Months went by, and then one night, someone went to a stairwell that was no longer widely used in the hospital. At the bottom of the stairwell was the body of the missing nurse. No one has any idea if she was pushed or fell accidentally, but in this place, it would would not surprise me if she was pushed. I think like asylums nowadays would have to have a lot more surveillance and cameras in the rooms and things for just to make sure they didn't have corruption like that going on. Yeah, it would be very difficult to and patients hurting at one another when you have so many people i mean first of all i think it would be different because you're not going to have so many people admitted for just basic human personality types Mm -hmm. but you'd have to go through a rigorous process to see if you did indeed belong in the mental institution and then i think the biggest problem i think we have is we don't have enough money to throw at this we we need to really entice people to want to work in this industry because it's really difficult i think dealing with people mm-hmm. trying to get them on the right medications or dealing with people who are violent who lash out mm-hmm. all of that would be incredibly difficult to do well even people with like dementia yeah um a lot of times their personalities change right 
and it's the dementia that's attacking, you know, parts of their brain that's changing their personality and they can become very aggressive. Right. And that is why I believe memory care is so expensive these days. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. it is very difficult for workers yes. to have to be around that kind of environment. Yeah. It, it really can tear down your mental health yourself. Your That's patients. why I said so many yeah. of these people admitted to the hospital weren't necessarily mentally ill, but when they're in those kind of conditions and around people who genuinely are mentally ill, that can really affect you, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. Um, in another instance, a man was in the restroom and he was stabbed 17 times by a patient. He crawled from the bathroom to the nurse's station and died, leaving a bloody trail behind him. And yet another room, two separate patients committed suicide by hanging themselves from curtain rods. These are just a handful of the horrific stories that came out of the asylum during its tenure. Because of the amount of sickness and death at the hospital, a medical center and a morgue were added to the grounds in 1960. They also added additional cemeteries to the property to bury the bodies of all who had died there, which ultimately ended up being around 2,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. In 1985, a reporter ran a story on the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum exposing the terrible conditions he witnessed in the hospital. He said that the walls of the hospital and the patients themselves were covered in feces. The hospital was dirty and overwhelmed with people and that the patients wanted the halls naked. This created outrage in the public. And in 1992, when the hospital was once again placed under the spotlight for its terrible conditions, it was deemed unsalvageable and the process to shut down the hospital began, with its doors closing for good in 1994. After it closed in 1994, the facility sat empty for years. Finally, in 2007, the 242,000 square foot complex was purchased by Joe Jordan for $1.5 million. Joe's daughter, Rebecca Jordan Gleason, runs it now. The building had been put on the registry for historic places in 1990, which may be the why they did not tear it down. Instead, they restored some of the buildings and opened it up for historical tours and paranormal tours. They had many paranormal TV shows in to investigate it, including Portals to Hell, Ghost Adventures, Paranormal Lockdown, and Ghost Hunters. Since opening it up to investigators, the paranormal activity has only increased in the buildings. So as you can imagine, a place with this kind of history is very haunted. And some of the reports of paranormal activity are gurneys rolling down the hallways with nobody pushing them, Ugh, orbs creepy. floating throughout the air, full-bodied apparitions appearing, the recording of several electronic voice phenomena or EVPs, doors mm -hmm. slamming on their own, the sounds of disembodied voices and screams. In fact, many screams are heard coming from the electroshock and lobotomy rooms and the areas where the confinement cribs and restraint chairs were kept. It is said that the room where Dean Metheny was murdered is very haunted, either by Dean or one of the men that took his life. People usually feel very sick in this room. Perhaps they are picking up on that event that happened there itself. Yeah, it's like they were just torturing people. There. Yeah, yeah, those two. And, so these, and, the strong and, emotions for right, sure right. Uh, left probably residual. Yeah, I think so. And I, I can actually, I'll talk a little bit more about the residual energy here in a minute. There was another report of a man named Slewfoot who had apparently killed multiple people in one of the bathrooms before being murdered himself, but I cannot find any information about this person. They claim that there is a deranged, disembodied laughter that belongs to Slewfoot and can be heard by people as they wander down the halls past his deadly bathroom. I don't know, though. I couldn't find much about this person, but, you know, they did have a lot of people there who were definitely murderers. Yeah, so. and if 
a name like Slewfoot, you'd have to <laughs> you'd have to change your name so that nobody it could find you. Seems like a serial killer name to me. I mean, it kind of screams Slewfoot. Mm-hmm. Slewfoot's gonna get you. Yeah, I would change my name. I would change my name too. Yeah. Another ghost that haunts the hospital is that of a little nine-year-old girl named Lily. Lily was actually born in the asylum as her mother was a patient there. Her mother was never released from the hospital during Lily's lifetime, and unfortunately, Lily contracted pneumonia and died there, never getting to leave the hospital and experience life outside its walls. And so she was only nine. She spent the entire spend of her life in the hospital. It is believed that the ghost of Lily stays on the fourth floor waiting for her mother to come and get her. People leave toys for her, and in fact, one group said that they would roll and bounce a ball across the room, and the ball would roll and bounce back to them. Uh They believed it was Lily playing with them. Also on the fourth floor- Or not. (laughs) Or yeah. I've seen it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's a creepy clown. Also on the fourth floor are two of the most paranormally active wards. Ward T, which has the alcoholics and the rehabilitation wing, which is probably where I'd hang out. That's where all the spirits are. That's right. Has, <laughs> this ward has many employees and guests getting scratched by unseen forces. They also hear the sound of chairs getting dragged around in the rooms. And in Ward R, another ghost known as the Creeper hangs out. Apparently, he slithers along the floor and pulls people to the ground. Those who have seen him says he looks like a translucent black mass. In fact, in one story, one of the tour guides was attacked and dragged to the floor. Two witnesses that were there had her hold her down so that she wasn't pulled down the hallway. Um, the morgue is also said to be haunted with the sound of cursing voices and shadow figures. So one theory, Carol, as to why there's so much paranormal activity at the asylum is that sandstone that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. that rock that was used to help construct the building, is a highly absorbent stone. It can hold on to the energy of events like a tape recorder can hold on to sound. It's like porous, isn't it? Kind of. I think so. Since the asylum is covered in sandstone, it acts as a living recorder to all that has happened there. And then a couple other little fun facts. Charles Manson did spend some time at the asylum. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And the owner, Rebecca Gleason, said that the hospital ballroom was used by the town for different events like proms. So could you imagine that you're in high school and it's like the 1950s and they're like, where are you guys? Where are we going to have the prom? Oh, I know. We're going to have it at the lunatic asylum. Allegheny lunatic (laughs) asylum. Hell yeah. No one's going to hear our screams there. She did guarantee, though, that they didn't mix the mental institution patients with the uh, high school kids. (laughs) But anyway. But there are those (laughs) underground tunnels. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are. Every asylum's got them. So they can make it easier for people to escape into the (laughs) night, especially the serial killers. So um, that is the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Wow. That is a fantastic story of lunacy of lunacy i know um but it also just makes you realize how um lucky we are to i mean mental health has certainly come a long way from the days of of that yeah but i we don't want to be abusing people like they did then no and i and i have to wonder like how are the hospitals run today because clearly we do have mental hospitals still but you don't hear about them as much as you do about the the asylums of old, like the Danvers one that was in Wilsonville, mm-hmm. they tore that one down a few years ago. I had heard some stuff about that one. Like I don't know. I think um, ultimately, 
trying to get people the help they need is difficult when you're, you need to find people who are willing to do the work to help them. Well, and in some cases, they can't be rehabilitated. Even on yeah. medication, they're never going to be a fully functioning person in society anymore. Right. And they'll need full-time care. And they'll need full-time care. Yeah. So in those cases, you know, what is the solution? Because they're not mm. happy. No, of course not. They're, you know, not being able to sort out what's real, what's not. And their reality is so lost to them because they're all alone in their space. Nobody's really and in their body and able they to can't, reach them. Yeah. And they can't, uh, if they're, they're really sick, they can't really tell what's real, what isn't real. Mm -hmm. They're paranoid. They're scared all the time. Like to live in that kind of mental state would just be really, really difficult and scary. A lot of people want to bring these institutions back. They do. I just think there has to be a lot more regulations around them and oversight. I, and if they do bring them back, I, I hope they keep the Kirkbride model, the Batwing style, because it's so scary looking. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like it's that. beautiful buildings, but I think all the, you know, the Tartarian builders are gone now. So oh, I shoot. don't think they can do that anymore. Mm. We should put them to the test. Be like, prove to us that you can build one of these I think beautiful they gothic. They've got the, um, the architecture plans. They can out of out. out of sandstone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. All right. It just well, probably will take twenty years to build it. It might. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed my story today. I hope it. Was I really enjoyed scary it. Scary and um, also intriguing and interesting. It was all of those things historically Holly. interesting. So. Um, all right. Well, you guys try to stay sane and cool this summer and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. And the lack of affordability to maintain the large buildings and staff. I'm sorry that one second. I did not read out the way I thought it did. Adorning the buildings were small gorgol. Oh, no, no. Gargoyle. No. I know. I know. Gurgle. Gurgle. Adorning, adorning. See, now I'm fucked up. <laughs> the doctors tried all sort of six things. No. No, no. Also on the fourth floor are two of the most paranormally active. No. Charles Manson spent a short time at the asylum. Was it? Yeah. I don't know. I, did he? That's or, what. Oh, I, you're not asking no, me. No, I'm telling, telling you. Me. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Maybe I should restate <laughs> that. Yeah, you're fucking done as the flames die down do remain undaunted though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted hey guys be sure to follow us on instagram our handle is at fireside phantoms if you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.